In the justice system, crimes are investigated and tried by the government with two distinct sides. The prosecution, which represents the state, and the defense, who represents the accused. During his 60-year career, attorney Mike Fowler has been on the front lines of both sides. These are his stories. I'm Lamar White Jr. of the Bayou Brief, and on this episode of Combat in the Courtroom, Mike Fowler chronicles the fall of the Jeffersons of New Orleans. A tale with sensational headlines, Nigerian businessmen, and money in the freezer. My phone rings, I answer it, and it's a soft-spoken voice saying, are you in your office? I say yes. And you don't know who it is? I have no idea, no identification. Anyway, what happens is a half hour later, Bill Jefferson walks in the office. For nearly three decades, William Jennings Jefferson had been an institution in Louisiana. An eight-term congressman, the sixth of ten children, born into poverty in a small village named Sweet Providence on the Mississippi Delta, way up in East Carroll Parish, once named the most unequal place in America. After graduating high school, he attended Southern University in Baton Rouge and then Harvard Law. And after law school, he worked as a legislative aide for U.S. Senator J. Bennett Johnston. And then he made the fateful decision to move to New Orleans. He served three terms in the Louisiana State Senate, launched two unsuccessful campaigns for mayor and another for governor. The first African-American from Louisiana elected to Congress since Reconstruction. By all appearances, he had attained the promise of the American dream. Back in 1990, in his first bid for mayor, flyers with fake $100 bills with Bill Jefferson's face on them were distributed by the Mark Morial campaign. Mark's father, Mayor Dutch Morial, coined the moniker eight years prior when Jefferson challenged him for mayor. The nickname now has a story. The morning of August 4, 2005, the FBI raided Bill Jefferson's homes in Virginia and New Orleans. The searches were the result of a years-long FBI investigation. Agents uncovered $90,000 wrapped in aluminum foil, like leftovers, nestled in the back of his freezer. Dollar Bill was caught red-handed with cold, hard cash. I quickly understood that he had just spent three or four hours talking or answering questions posed by the FBI at his home. At first, Jefferson answered the FBI agent's questions. When the agents began asking about his business affairs, though, and taped conversations, Jefferson reportedly said, I think I should stop talking to you boys. Bill Jefferson, unrelated to his political career, he viewed himself as something of an entrepreneur and was trying to develop fiber optics in, I think it was Nigeria. He was in partnership with a guy named Vernon Jordan, who was an expert in that field of technology. And a major investor in this project was a woman named Modi. And she had put three million plus into the business. Bill Jefferson, in partnership with Vernon Jordan, was promoting a business called iGate, with the goal of bringing internet access to Ghana and Nigeria. A woman named Lori Modi hired former Jefferson staffer, Brett Pfeiffer, to run her venture capital firm. 
Pfeiffer then introduced his new boss, Modi, to his old boss, Congressman Jefferson. The congressman and the venture capitalist got along fine for a while. Then there was a falling out. Modi suspected she was being hustled. She goes to the FBI and makes a complaining, and in the course of it, mentions Bill Jefferson's involvement. The FBI's ears perk up. They enlist Modi to sort of act as an undercover agent. They then write the script for all of her meetings with Bill Jefferson. And at some point, she arranges at the FBI's request to be introduced to the vice president of Nigeria, who happens to have a home in Maryland. Bill had no problem doing that. He knew the man. It's an innocent meeting of her going to discuss their future entrepreneurial venture that the vice president was interested in advancing. And they leave. And on the car ride back, Modi says, we really need, and this is part of the script that was written for her, we really need to do something for the vice president. I would think that a sizable amount of cash would make sense. And Bill's telling her, and this is a matter of record, there's no need. We don't need to do that. And she's insisting. Well, Bill didn't want to, you know, kill the golden calf. She was there on the brink of putting, needing to put in more money. So he's, he's going to humor her and to go forward. Humor her is my phrase. Bill and Modi agree to meet for dinner at a restaurant in Virginia. It's there on July 21st, 2005. The Jefferson explains the scheme to bribe Nigerian officials via a company named the Nigerian Internet Company. Bill is on tape saying, quote, we've got to motivate him real good. He's got a lot of folks to pay off. If he's got to pay Minister X, we don't want to know. That's not our deal. We're not paying Minister X a damn thing. That's all, you know, international fraud crap. We're not doing that. Whatever they do locally, that's their business, end quote. Days later, Modi would meet Bill to drop off a red briefcase with $100,000 in marked bills provided by the FBI who filmed the whole thing. Bill takes the money with the assurance that he'll get it to the vice president that day. Later that night, Modi calls him to be reassured it was delivered. Bill tells him it has. He never brought a penny to the vice president. He simply was leading her along, not wanting to tell her he wasn't going to do it, but he had no intention of doing it. According to Jefferson, he gave $10,000 to his housekeeper for medical bills before deep-freezing the rest of the money. The fallout for Jefferson happened quickly. The Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, removed him from the Ways and Means Committee, and it appeared, at least at the time, that his political obituary had been written. But Dollar Bill proved to be resilient, and when he stood for re-election the following year, he won in a runoff against Karen Carter-Peterson. Mike would be involved in negotiations with the government for a year. But after Bill is indicted in Virginia in June of 2007, he was no longer involved. Dollar Bill would lose his bid for a 10th term to Republican Joe Gao, an astonishing outcome in the overwhelmingly Democratic district. A few things are notable about the results of the subsequent trial. First, Lori Modi never took the stand for the prosecution. In fact, Jefferson wasn't actually convicted on any charges related to the money. He was found guilty of 11 of 16 corruption counts. 
Despite the fact that everyone remembers the frozen cash, that was the beginning of the end. Not just for Congressman Jefferson, but the Jefferson family dynasty. An older sister, Betty, was the three-term tax assessor for the 4th District of Orleans Parish. Her daughter, Angela, was involved in the family business, as was a younger sister, Brenda. But second only to Bill was his older brother, Mose Jefferson, who ran the political machine and was also an entrepreneur. He was frequently involved in deals and favors, positioning the Jeffersons as power brokers. The case against Mose was very interesting. It involved a wealthy New Orleans figure named John Lee, and he developed this learning program for high school students. It was something he was selling throughout the country, but what he was getting is grants from the government for purposes of being able to develop his whole project. It's significant because the way Lee would sell his product, it's a product that had to be sold to public entities, namely school boards. He was basically selling the program and the computers specialized computers to the schools throughout the country and would have representatives, people who were movers and shakers in the community, who would get a commission for any sale. The local New Orleans consultant for Lee was Mose Jefferson, which made sense since he was politically connected. He was the moving force behind the Jefferson political entity, the Progressive Democrats. He was not a public official, but he was politically connected. This marketing strategy by I Can Learn was repeated on a much grander scale with Congressman Bob Livingston, also of Louisiana. While in Congress, Livingston spearheaded a $7.6 million earmark. After his resignation, in disgrace, for the next five years, Livingston, lobbying on behalf of I Can Learn, received $4 million in fees following the successful earmarking of another $38 million by Congress. To the best of Mike's knowledge, no one ever investigated the connection between Livingston's official actions and the payments he received. Mose had the same arrangement with I Can Learn for Orleans Parish. So he's looking to sell this I Can Learn program to the Orleans Parish School Board he had, I think there were five people on the board, four of whom right off the bat were favorable. The school board, after listening to presentations by Lee, buys the program for the Orleans Parish School Board, as a result of which, Mose Jeffersons gets a commission of $900,000. The FBI's ongoing investigation in the business dealings of the Jefferson family revealed $140,000 in payments to Orleans Parish School Board President Elenice Brooks Sims from Mose Jefferson. Brooks Sims and Mose were longtime friends. In fact, 20 years before, they'd even dated. Sims was financially in trouble during the time, having nothing to do with the school, school board. Yeah. She had a disabled husband, and she hit Mose up for some money. And there's no question he gave her three checks of 50,000, of 50,000, and of 40,000. Yeah. They, the government then gets a hold of Elodie's book, Sims. She gets an attorney who then is able to convince the government 
to make Eleni's book Sims, in effect, a confidential informant in all her dealings with Mose Jefferson. Brooks Sims gets Mose on tape, concocting multiple cover stories on what to say to the FBI for the reasons of the payments, and two different conversations, once at a Home Depot and another time at a local hospital. The portrayal is damning. They indict him for the bribery of Eleanor Sims, and she, of course, the key witness. He gets convicted. They convicted him with respect to two of the three payments. He had sentenced by Mary Vial Lemon to something like seven years. That wasn't the last Mike would see of Mose Jefferson. Mike had only worked on the case because Moses' attorney in a separate matter, Buddy Lemon, had been conflicted out. Mose had also been indicted in a separate case involving some non-profits and he, together with Betty Jefferson, were indicted in that. After about a year of their being indicted in that separate case, they added Renee Gilpratt as a defendant. Mose never faces trial on bribery charges, dying of cancer while in prison at the age of 68. Mike would represent Renee Gilpratt, a New Orleans City Councilwoman, against charges of racketeering. A shocking charge for a former three-term state representative with a history of service. Renee's background is as a teacher, but she's an effective voice in the black community, has the support of not only the progressives, but she's also the companion at the time of Mose Jefferson. According to the government, Gil Pratt facilitated the sale of I Can Learn to two private schools. For this, Mose received a commission of $90,000, and of that payment, Gil Pratt allegedly received $3,500 through a sham nonprofit created by Mose Jefferson and Betty Jefferson, his older sister. She had nothing to do with running the nonprofit. Unbeknownst to her and to many others, Betty and Mose were using substantial sums of that money for their own personal use. And Mo bought presents for Renee, if Renee needed some work done at her house where she and her mother lived, it was workers paid indirectly by those grants that were on the payroll. Mose and Betty moved more than $1 million through the nonprofit, leaving a considerable paper trail. Mose and Betty at trial were shown to have written checks directly to employees, themselves, their credit cards, their mortgage holders, and straw payees, whose signature they then forged. Gil Pratt would be implicated by sharing an office building with the nonprofit. The case would go on trial in February 2011. We felt very good about that case. And there was a hung jury. What happened at that time, wholly independent of the Gil Pratt Mose situation, there were two upper echelon figures in the U.S. Attorney's Office. Unbeknownst to the world, were sending out blogs, and a lot of the many of the blogs had to do with the Jeffersons, with yes. Bill Jefferson, Mose Jefferson, Renee Gilpratt, very prejudicial, in effect prejudicing the jury poll. This was a massive scandal that would threaten to unravel not just this case, but practically every case out of the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of New Orleans. It was more than just a blog. It was a disinformation campaign to prejudice juries. 
Two senior assistant U.S. attorneys, Sal Paracone and Jan Mann, created multiple fake personas on the local newspaper's website to comment on ongoing cases and investigations. Their comments were often vicious and on occasion broke investigative details that even the accompanying story didn't include. To the bafflement of local journalists, no one knew who these commenters were. But this group knew something about every legal case happening in federal court. One of the targets of their sock puppet attacks, a wealthy businessman and son of a judge, hired forensic experts to analyze their writing styles and word choices, the commenters. Ironically, the phrase, a fish rots from the head down, was found as the linguistic link between the commenting accounts and a brief submitted by Sal Paracone. The fallout of this would be enormous. Paracone and Mann were forced to resign, and eventually their boss, U.S. Attorney Jim Letton, as well. In 2011, at the time of the trial, the commenters were posting hundreds of comments a month, never missing a story and dominating online discussions. Sal Paracone, under a fake account, posted, quote, If Pratt walks, it's the judge's victory and that Gil Pratt was greedy, deserving of punishment. Mike would attempt to weed out that prejudice with an exhaustive voir dire process. The fourth potential juror's interview went like this. Mr. Moon, I'm Mike Fowler. I represent Rene Gil Pratt. Nice to meet you. I read your pretrial questionnaire. Obviously, I know what the sources are of your information. You've told us a little more. But I'm not clear what it is that as you sit here right now, that you know about the case. I think I heard you say just the basic charges. There has been some publicity, obviously. Right. People talked about it. I think you indicated someone you listened to regularly had an opinion. Right. Uh, you see articles in the newspaper where I I'm usually the one that will read the headlines and not go much further than that. If I asked you to tell me what you know in detail, what you know about the matter, what would you tell me? It's unimportant if you're right or wrong about it. I understand just the racketeering in terms of racketeering charges, money laundering, and then I just basically know that there were charities involved. To the involvement, I really don't know. When Miss Gil Pratt stood up in the courtroom, I think it's the first time you would have ever seen her. The first time, yes, sir. Either on TV or in the newspaper? Probably, yes. When you saw her, what do you associate with the name Rene Gilpratt? About their involvements with the Jefferson family? That, that's been in the newspaper, TV, radio, but, but that's about it. Fair enough. The Jeffersons are not on trial. I understand. You know that. Do you have an opinion of the Jeffersons or any one of them in terms of their guilt or innocence? I think a lot of that's been done. I'm sorry? I, I, I think a lot of that's been determined, some of that's been determined, but not beyond that, no. I understand that some of that has been determined, but obviously you weren't a juror or at least had nothing to do with it. What I'm interested in, do you, based upon what you've read and heard, have an opinion about the Jeffersons generally or any one of the particular Jeffersons? Yeah, I, I would have a negative opinion, yes sir. Okay, and that's your opinion. Yes. And it's based on what you've read. Now, I do know you gather from what the judges told you that Renee, my client, had an association over a number of years with one of the Jeffersons, Mose Jefferson, correct? 
You knew that before he told you that. Uh, yes, I did. Do you have an opinion of Mose Jefferson? It's a negative opinion, yes. Okay, what is the negative opinion based on? In other words, what is it that makes you have a negative opinion? Just his criminal activity? That's fine. I'm not looking for anything but just honest, candid answers, okay? Right. Your opinion is that he was involved, from what you've read and heard, in criminal activity. Yes, yes sir. The judges told you that my client had this long-time association. Does that association taint my client in any way in your eyes? Yes. Tell me how. Just association, uh, growing up. I was always told, you know, you, you are who your friends are or who your associates are, so it, it would just be to the point. I understand, and I appreciate that, but... Uh, y yes, sir. What I get from that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that based on your being told, or you know that Renee had a relationship with someone who was involved in criminal activity, what concerns me, I think would probably concern you if you were in my place, is the problem of guilt by association. And I see you're shaking your head. Are you not affirmatively? Uh, yes, sir. Um, so that there is for you some guilt that is ascribed to Rene Gilpratt because of the association with Mose Jefferson, correct? Yes, sir. Am I right? Yes, sir. Let's talk about it. She's not coming into the courtroom, in your judgment, with a purely clean slate, is she? No, other than the association, I, I, don't, I don't know anything else. I understand that. But you ascribe guilt to, or some guilt. But by association. When they're supposed to be, as the judge has told you, a presumption of innocence. And by the way, nobody finds fault with whatever opinion you have, whatever conclusion you've reached. The point, but the point of the matter is, she's coming here with some baggage that she's not supposed to have in your eyes, right? Yes, that, that's correct. So in a sense, she's not playing on an even playing field, is she? She's supposed to be presumed innocent, and you can't presume her innocent, right? Can you presume Miss Pratt innocent at this stage? I can presume her innocence, yes, sir. Would you convict Miss Pratt simply because of her association with Mose Jefferson? No. Can you decide this case based solely upon the evidence and the law without any tendency into the case of the finding her guilty simply because of her relationship with Mose Jefferson or any other Jefferson? Yes. That's enough. Thank you, sir. I'm not finished. You are. I object to being cut off in the middle of my examination. Counsel will take this up later. Your Honor, I have a right to make a record. Mr. Moon, we'll see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. I'm taking over idea from this point on because your questions, Mr. Fowler, your questions are confusing questions. Not to him. Not to him. If you don't have one more time, we're going to have you cited for unprofessional conduct. Which part of it was unprofessional? The part where you cut me off? Mr. Fowler, you should not cut me off, just like I don't cut you off. You did. I did cut you off because you were going into extraneous matters which were confusing. What was extraneous? First warning. You've cut me off a second time. Tell me when I can speak. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Fowler. Your questions of this juror, knowing that he was very clear in saying that he would be fair, would not be influenced in any associations, then tried to put into his head that he would find her guilty because of that association. He said, yes, she has a taint going into it. He did not say that he would find her guilty because of that nor did he say he would disregard the evidence in the case, whether that's favorable or negative in reaching his verdict. With all due respect, Judge, I conduct voir dires. I've never seen or met a judge who knew how to conduct a voir dire except to clean up a witness who has already been tainted, and that's what you did. With all due respect, you took a juror 
who anyone in the world would knock off the jury for cause because he was saying he could not, as a real matter, presume her innocent. That's not what he said. Of course to you, but not to me. You have a right to your opinion, but your opinion is wrong. Thank you. I beg your pardon? You have a right to your opinion, but it's wrong. You took away my right to conduct the meaningful, insightful voir dire of someone who has admitted he could not presume her innocent. Well, guess what? I'm taking over the entire voir dire now. Judge Ivan Lamel would do just that and conduct what Mike calls, quote, an incredibly incompetent voir dire. Renee would be convicted of racketeering and sentenced by Judge Lamel to seven years in prison. On appeal, the court ruled Judge Lamel had miscalculated the sentencing guidelines and reduced the sentence to four years. Mike appealed the voir dire takeover to the U.S. Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, but he was denied. There will never be a reevaluation of the Jeffsons. They will always be tainted, some of which concerning Mose was legitimate. Oh, sure. I don't think anything involving Renee was. Everybody, by the way, who testified against Renee, the relevant people, walked off with slaps on the wrist, no jail time. Ivan Lamel, for my money, was a shill in the government's pocket. I think that Renee was unfairly convicted. She served some time in prison has come out, put her life back together again, and she's fine. Mike's probably right. It's unlikely there will ever be a serious reassessment of the Jefferson family. Insofar as they ruled like a royal family, then it can be said that their claim to the throne is now extinct. Their reign abolished. And there is no possibility of a restoration. In 2009, the judge in Dollar Bill's case, Judge Ellis, handed him the longest sentence ever given to a member of Congress, former or current, 156 months. That's 13 years. He wouldn't report to prison until three years later, in 2012, when he had exhausted whatever chances he may have had on appeals. He ended up catching a lucky break, however. In 2016, the U.S. Supreme Court considerably narrowed the definition of political corruption in a case involving the governor of Virginia. Because of this, Judge Ellis was forced to vacate seven of Jefferson's 11 convictions. Dollar Bill has been a free man since 2017. There's no profound lesson to be learned here. This is the same story that Shakespeare wrote about in King Lear and Richard III. It's about hubris and greed, about the extent to which power corrupts the corruptible. But if there is any epitaph, to be written about the Jeffersons of Orleans by way of Lake Providence, one need look no further than the comment Dollar Bill made when the FBI showed him the footage they recorded of him accepting the bride money. He sunk into his chair, exasperated and forlorn, and said aloud, what a waste. There's more details in Mike's book, from the Bronx to the Bayou, available online at bronxtothebayou.com and Amazon in hardcover, paperback, and ebook. If you're in New Orleans, it's available at Octavia Books and Blue Cypress Bookstore. I'm Lamar Y. Jr. of the Bayou Brief. On behalf of myself and my producer, Ben Collinsworth, thanks for listening.